You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Anthony. I'm uh, somewhat taking over for Ian this week. We'll just say he's on IR and we expect him back next week. I won't say if it's an upper or lower body injury, but I guess we'll find out. So uh, I don't want to use the word taking his place, but, you know, somewhat substituting in form today. Gus Katseros, thanks for joining us. Pleasure is always mine. I don't know if I can really fill the shoes, but we'll try it out. <laughs> so, Gus, can you just introduce a little bit of your work and some of the stuff that you do off the top, just in case any of the listeners are unfamiliar? Um, well, I've been with McKean's Hockey for the better part of 15 years now. It kind of sounds strange even saying that, but 15 years, a decade and a half. Um, I've done a bunch of different kind of scouting. Um, I've, I've worn different scouting hats with them. Um, I've done some uh, scouting coordination just between um, coverage areas and, and making sure that we have a good amount of prospect coverage. Um, and sometimes specifically for those players that were drafted, we really did a, a, a try to do a good job to get some background info on how they were developing as professionals um, above and beyond on and off the ice. Um, I was with the Owen Sound Attack, obviously with this season being done. Um, I wasn't brought back. We'll see what happens next season. Um, and I'm just kind of going through COVID at this point in time. We're, we're going to start working on the yearbook with McKean's very soon. Um, I have an article that comes out every week on uh, NBC Sports Edge. It's analytics-based, but they've kind of given me a bit more of a free a free will to, to expand the, the type of content that I'm able to generate. Um, so we'll see. We'll see where that kind of morphs into and then... Uh, we're just trying to get through COVID at this point. You know, before we get to the Leafs, I, I'd been meaning to say this on the podcast for, for weeks now, but it, you know, just one thing after the other on it. It's such a bummer that there's no junior hockey this year. Like there's no OHL, there's no minor hockey. Like I ha- I coached a number of kids who would be in their minor midget season this year and you know they're unable to play it and it's their draft year so that's particularly disappointing like it and you know even if you're not going to get drafted and go to the nhl like it's just heartbreaking like just as a kid who played it himself like i played in the gthl growing up like you only really get like like eight to ten of those years sort of and they go by quick and to be fully cheated out of a season uh it just it sucks man it really does yeah, that's it's just such on on such different levels too. Like I talked to some coaches and, and some other staffs, um, and they talk a lot about you know some of the kids that have that lost opportunity to kind of when they're drafting into the junior leagues. Then you have the lost opportunities for those kids that are just overagers and like they were kind of doing their their grand grand tour out of the league and. Like, I know that we all do our sacrifices and, and it's been kind of difficult on everybody's loop, but I kind of have a little bit of a special place in my heart for those junior players that are really starting to, they, they, they really put themselves in a position where they really wanted to play and they just weren't able to. And, and it's, it's really heartbreaking. And the junior games, I think this year would have been a little bit different on a personal side. I'm essentially kind of working from home. So just getting to a junior game is a lot more accessible. I'm sure that for the general population now, understanding that there might be more of a work from home component might be able to get to more junior games just because of the accessibility, right? 
So if there is one thing that we can kind of take out of this this whole pandemic is perhaps there's more opportunities to enjoy other better brands of hockey on a more local level because of the opportunity to be able to actually get to those games. So hopefully that kind of spurns it to a, a, a brand new level of enjoyment for hockey fans out of this pandemic. Yeah, and as and we'll turn things over to the Leafs because I know that's the main reason that people tune in and we talk about local hockey. I mean, they're the Leafs. <laughs> And hockey, coming maybe. off, yeah, right. And then coming off a two-game sweep of of Winnipeg, there's eight games left in the season for the Leafs. Uh, they're seven points up on the Oilers, and the Oilers actually have two games in hand on them. So while we were kind of saying this before the before the podcast recorded, just in our quick little chat prior to starting this thing, I mean, I'd like to think that they more or less have first kind of wrapped up and i'm i'm loath to take anything for granted just as a leaf fan my whole life I'd, i've just had egg on my face way too many times but i guess sort of in theory edmonton who's kind of on one right now i mean they could they could make it interesting for first like it, i guess it's not technically locked up you know it's kind of odd but i thought that maybe about 15 to 20 games into the season, the Leafs would just end up running away with first in the division and put them in a position where they're able to experiment a little bit along the way. Matthews gets hurt. His injury really affects the Leafs, which I think in a nutshell doesn't seem to be bad. But to me, it kind of felt like the Leafs were just good enough to compete as a hockey team without Matthews and really needed Matthews to be able to say that we are a winning team. And without his goal scoring, without his ability to generate scoring chances, and Marner's all good, and, that, and that's all fine. But without Matthews there, they're not a a good enough contending team. That's kind of how it felt. Then he comes back, he plays terrible because he's like, unable to do anything because of his wrist, and then the Leafs go into a skid. So all of these preconceived notions, 15 to 20 games into the season, where they're just going to run away with the division and pfft, Who's going to catch him? Now, all of a sudden, to your point, Edmonton is knocking on their back door. And if they maintain a bit of the heater that they're on, and the Leafs don't necessarily get off the five-game losing streak, even though they beat Winnipeg in the last couple, and they still maintain some of those things that, that kind of came up, and who knows what goaltending is going to bring to them, you're absolutely right. There's no lock in first place at all. It could be Montreal playing spoiler these last four games, or three or four games, whatever it is. Um, down the way yeah four out of four out of the final eight are against the Habs and it's kind of interesting too that you say that because it kind of feels like for most of the season and and you know I I forget if uh I mean I'm sure one of us would have chatted with you just one of the hot stove people I I think that you were kind of in on the preseason predictions too like the entire everybody predicted the Leafs to finish first it wasn't exactly going on a limb and it kind of feels like all season they've you know they've they've been in first and it's been like there's a little bit of distance between the other teams but they haven't you're right to that like this is this is theirs and it's completely over but anytime somebody comes close it kind of feels like they kind of slap the hand and it's like okay stop this nonsense like we're we're the top team but you look at it and re- like the Leafs have pulled further away than any other team um that's leading their division like Carolina's up 2 points on Florida you have Vegas is up four points on Colorado. So, you know, all in all, like the Leafs are, you know, they're actually doing better than the other teams when it comes to pulling away. 
The only thing about that though is I my expectation. It's kind of funny. The expectation was for them to just run away with the division. But I actually like the fact that even though they did face a lot of the adversity, they were still finding ways to win games. That bad goaltending came off. Tavares and Nylander stepped up. Um, they went through some injury trouble. Zach Hyman stepped up. So they found components within themselves to be able to elevate their game and be more competitive than I think that they should have been. Um, that is, I think, a positive sign because going into the playoffs, if you lose a player like Matthews, for instance, if his wrist isn't 100%, you still need to be able to compete and play at your best. And if they've gone through those elements of adversity to kind of understand and get a good feel, like when your goaltender is just not playing very well and you really need to kind of bail them out, they've been through that situation. Hopefully they're able to draw with that um, and build off of something like that. So it, it's been a weird season. And while... The way that you described it, it seems like they're running away with the division. Um, there's been a lot of learning moments within that that time frame that I think doesn't really kind of affect the way that where they end up the season. I think it's more practice or a preliminary view of how they would have to play through certain elements if anybody ended up having a, a significant injury in the playoffs. That's what I think the learning moments are here. One of the weirdest things that I've been harping on this drum, and I know people fight me on this all the time, shout out to the commenters for sure is like if one of Matthews or Tavares gets hurt I don't know why they don't give Nylander any reps at at center throughout the regular season because honestly like Matthews missed some time and and they moved up Kerfoot to the second line center and it was just like why are we even bothering guys I mean this is not your 2C I'm sorry in any circumstance whatsoever this cannot be the guy that's playing second line center when you get to the playoffs and you get to the big games. And then what are their other options? Potentially Nick Felino. It's not going to be Pierre Engvall, that's for sure. And it's not going to be Joe Thornton or Jason Spezza. So, you know, and then last year, of course, we saw game five, they want to load up the top line. So who plays center? William Nylander. And people gave him shit for how he played. And he was, he had no chance I mean, I felt genuinely bad for William Nylander, the way they threw him in there in Game 5. That You know, how could he possibly competently play that position? But he should be the guy, right? Talk about being put in a position to fail, yet he did okay, I mean, under the circumstances. Yeah. So that that's a bit of a tough question, too. Sorry, because it's just... Personally, I think I, I like Nealander on the wing. I think he performs best on the wing. If the necessity drives that they put him at center, I sometimes feel that some of those old school views come out and they say, well, he can't handle the defensive load of the center. You know, the defensive load of the center is a bullshit tactic at this point in time because it all F1, F2, F3 once the puck yeah. drops. So if Nealander starts at center and is able to uh, commit to an offensive game as the center but needs a little bit of assistance in order to maintain that defensive element, why wouldn't you just offer that? Figure out a way to make, make sure that you're able to kind of go through that. Because I agree, you can't have Kerfoot, or even in a platoon situation, you can't have Spezza and Kerfoot. I, don't even, I wouldn't even expect Joe Thornton to be part of that platoon. No. Or Engvall. You can't. They, they're just not skilled or, or, or good enough to be able to handle that kind of a pressure and that kind of a load. So... You have to kind of do that. You have to move Nealander to the middle, and then you have to supplement the wings with some kind of... And there you can... This is where I think they miss a guy like Nazem Kadri. 
Nazim Kadri, you could put anywhere in the lineup and you know this is where you're going to be playing for the next period, two periods, five games, whatever the case is, um, especially as a center. So it kind of goes to show you they gave away an asset that was really versatile in the way that they were able to kind of mold their roster, especially with injuries and, and, and all of that. And they still kind of do have that option in Nylander. I'm not 100% sure they're going to go with that if some big injury does end up going down. So if Tavares or Matthews does end up going down, I just don't know if they're going to end up moving Nylander into the center. They'll still just try to experiment. And, you know, just to end on that, last year when the Leafs had trouble scoring and generating scoring and being in a position where they found themselves, they all the only answer that Keefe really had was load up the big line with all the talent. So he put Marner, Matthews, and Tavares together. And then he put Marner, Matthews, and Nylander together. And then he just kind of exposed it. So that's not necessarily a strategic thing to do. It was more of a desperation move. That is more of what I kind of think we'll see here if it comes down to the fact that they just don't have an answer for whatever playoff component um, they face that gives them the most fits. And then is it going to be Montreal? No. And we will talk about the Habs soon because it, it – they're at about 90% chance now to make the playoffs, which would mean they would finish fourth. And hypothetically, we would get the dream Leafs-Habs series that everybody's wanted since, uh, I think, when the last time they played them was 1979. But before we get to that, I want to actually go back to a point because you brought up something really interesting. And then you brought up a player that I was going to use as the example, actually, in Nazem Kadri. But it was particularly about how centers, like it's kind of a you know somewhat made up position depending on how you want to play it. And... Nazem Kadri kind of opened my eyes to it in the first place, actually, because I'm sure you recall, he used to be on a line with Nikolai Kulemin and Joffrey Lupo. I used to love that line, by the way. Shout out to the old crappy Leafs. Super fun at times, but super frustrating team. But Kulemin basically handled center for Kadri while he was learning how to play the game and like bulking up and, and all that stuff. And it was interesting um, watching Nick Felino, especially in his first game, it was almost like he wanted to play center. The way that he was playing defensively in like the D zone and stuff, you know, and by that I mean if, you know, sometimes listeners ask, well, okay, what do you mean? Like, can you expand on that kind of concept? He really cheated inside the dots. He leaned that way. Sometimes the same way you see a defenseman, the way they kind of naturally lean to uh, not joining the rush and kind of hanging back in the play. Nick Felino kind of actually leaned towards covering the guy in the slot and going really, really low in the D zone, things traditionally a center would do. So he could be kind of that guy where you could, in a, and we're going super hypothetical right now, but he could kind of be the guy that, that rides along Nylander. Okay, I'll play center in the D zone. You kind of play center when it comes to skating the puck up the ice and you know, using the middle of the ice between the dots to kind of create offense, which is what you want. Uh, but I just, the whole thing to me, as we're building up for the playoffs, we mentioned they have eight games left, four against the Habs. How are you approaching that, knowing that this might be your first round opponent? Yeah, that's an interesting view too, right? Because now you get all the previews and you get to really test uh, Montreal's limits. <clears throat> I think that just Montreal in general, if you do, like, it's pretty clear that they're going to have trouble scoring goals. So how do you limit their chances to score goals? You've got to clog up the neutral zone to allow them to, to not allow them clean zone entries. If they're going to get in there, they're going to have to work for it. Once they're in there, they have to work. And if they have to work through a cycle, that's even better because I think that the Habs might be a bit better off the rush than they might be as a cycle team. 
they've added good components in Josh Anderson and Tyler Toffoli, but as good as those stories are, those aren't good enough to elevate the offense to a point that it could say Montreal can compete offensively with the Leafs. So now we have a classic case of we have a better defensive structure. I'm not going to say that Montreal is better defensively, but their structure is much better than Toronto's um, versus a team that can score almost at will. So now we have a juggernaut as far as scoring goes versus a juggernaut as far as defensive structure goes. So the battle is going to be, and I've always kind of said this, you can't win on defense. You have to score goals in order to advance throughout the playoffs. Defense keeps you in the game, but you have to find a way to go above and beyond and score. Montreal has struggled enough this season, and in certain situations against the competition in this North Division to the degree that you can easily question their scoring ability. And if the Leafs continue to have their terrible goaltending that they've had over this last stretch, and they're not able to improve it, and Montreal is able to find a scoring touch because of a, 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 a chink in the armor from Toronto's side, Toronto's going to have to up that offensive game. So it opens up both clubs. So I think that we are going to see a lot of testing of systems over these next four games. You're going to see a lot of clogging in the neutral zone by Toronto. You'll probably see a lot more um, high-risk maneuvers, high-risk plays, just to see how far they can kind of push Montreal's defense to see where they can kind of break it. Once they get... Because it's got to be supple like a reed, right? Once they get past that breaking point, the dam opens and Montreal doesn't have an answer for that. Going back the other way, if Montreal is able to do something similar as far as clogging up the neutral zone because Toronto really likes that north-south game um, and doesn't give them the ability to handle their inside uh, um, time inside the offensive zone, and they do have a much better handle of, of putting players in spots to make it more difficult to get passing through, um, they could give the Leafs enough fits to stifle some of their upper-end scoring, and they better be able to find some secondary scoring to supplement all of that too. So these next four games leading into the playoffs might actually be better than the four or five games that they do end up playing in the playoffs. That That's interesting too. So I'm, I'm a huge football fan during you know the football season, of course. And one thing I know just following it along is coaches like to keep you know, certain plays in their back pocket for the playoffs. So you read it every playoff season. It's like, yeah, I sat on that play since October. I just didn't want to show, tip my hand to anybody. I didn't want them to know. And I'm kind of wondering as, as the Leafs go on, if, if Keith, you know, four games, he's like, yeah, I'll let them get their matchups and I'll, you know, kind of screw around with my lines and then playoff time hit. And I'm going to kind of mix in something new whether it's a different line match, whether it's a different kind of sort of combination, whether it's a different little approach. I mean, realistically, if one of the two teams is playing with house money right now, it's Toronto, right? So what kind of things could he potentially look at mixing in to throw off the Habs come playoff time? One of the things I think that they can do is make sure that they win the matchups. So it looks like Montreal will probably try to match their best defensive center, maybe Philip Deneau against Austin Matthews. If they consistently win that matchup, um, I think that they can win the series because you're putting their defensive best against the Leafs' defensive, sorry, offensive best. Something is going to break, and whoever side wins that battle um, will essentially win the series. And I think that there's enough power on Toronto's side to be able to kind of maneuver that. The other wild card to that situation is Zach Hyman. If Zach Hyman is playing on that first line, it just makes him that much stronger. And it almost kind of nullifies a little bit of that defensive element from Montreal's side too because he can 
You know, the bottom line here is playing defense is about getting the puck back. If they can get the puck back in the offensive zone, which is a forte of Hyman and, and then the cycling game between Marner and Matthews, then that's already a win. And you, if they decide to go power for power, which I can't see Montreal doing, um, you'll get the Leafs' best taking away offensive chances from Montreal's best and offensive time from Montreal's best. It's not necessarily a good strategy. So I think that the line matchups will be more important to Montreal to be able to ensure that their defensive best are on the ice when the Leafs' offensive best are on. Um, I don't really think that matters whether it's a defensive unit that they assign to that or a forward line. I use the forward line as an example, but they might just say, you know, Weber and X might be used as a defensive pair whenever Matthews and Thnarna are on. Your job is to stop them. If we can stop them, blah, 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 all the way down the line. So those are the first things that I would start to look at from Montreal's perspective. As far as systems go, I think that they both... I think it's kind of hard because I think that you're kind of right. I think I don't think that the Leafs have shown exactly what the kind of team they want to be like, especially with now with a healthy team and Nick Foligno that's fully contributing with Zach Hyman does end up coming back. How does he fit in and where do they move all these parts? You know, ideally, you put Hyman back on the first line. I would move Foligno to that second line, kind of similar to your point, to use him for that defensive element between Tavares and Nylander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys go score goals. Go. Yeah. I, I got this. And then you get a third line where you, yeah, then you get a third line where you can put Kerfoot and Engvall and Mikheyev and and, and any combination and Spezza if you want to move them up to the third line. So there's lots of opportunities, I think, for the Leafs to kind of do some roster adjustments. Um, And once we see those adjustments, that's where we're going to see them in these last four games against Montreal. And it's going to be an interesting way to kind of end the series off for them. I like I like Philip Tenow as much as one can like a checking center. I mean, he's a solid checking line center <laughs> and all that. I just I can't take that that line seriously if Brendan Gallagher is not back. But honestly, just if, if Brendan Gallagher is not back, I mean, I don't give a, I don't care what they think about Cole Caulfield right now. It's just it's a hard one to to take seriously with how important Brendan Gallagher is to that team at five on five. It's interesting how we always tend to think that hockey is such a team game, but you take an important part like Gallagher out of Montreal and they have to completely almost change their identity to be able to compensate. And there's lots of teams that probably have that one dynamic enough player. Um, for the Leafs, it might just be Zach Hyman, right? When he's out of the lineup, it's a distinct loss. You see that they have to change the way that they play because he's gone. Um, so, yeah, you're you're right. With the loss of Gallagher, that's a big, big loss. It. it it tumbles their forwards into a completely different set of uh, roles and responsibilities that they may not necessarily be capable of playing through. Now, conversely, the Leafs, of course, we kind of alluded to it and, and mentioned it a little bit indirectly there. They added Nick Felino in, and I mentioned you know a little bit about how he was kind of cheating towards playing a bit of center defensively. What did you think of him in his first two games? And, and you know, I think he comes as advertised. I, I like him as a player. I like the pickup. What did you see from Felino and, and kind of how he fits and what he brings to this group? Well, Felino isn't necessarily a banger crasher and, and like what you would consider a defensive specialist. He's structurally sound. So like kind of to your point, he knew to lean into between the dots. It's just become a natural, innate part of his game. It's always kind of been there, even from his Ottawa days. Um, he's always had a bit of a net front presence without the puck, bit of a strong bullheaded approach to that. Um, so he's not afraid to muck it up, whether it's in front of the net, in the corners. We saw a little bit of, of that in spurts. Um, I, I also think that his, his, 
His performance is skewed because he was playing with Marner and Matthews. To really get a good gauge of where Nick Foligno really provides a lot of value in the lineup, it would have to be somewhere a little bit down the roster. So you throw him on a line with Tavares and Nealander and you see just how well they match up against, let's just say, the team's next best line or the opponent's best line. I, I just think that he's had a decent enough debut. Um, to show what he's capable of giving to Toronto above and beyond a scoring element. Um, he does have a little bit of a scoring element. I just wouldn't, that wouldn't be the natural attractive uh, uh, characteristic to him. But until we actually see him play in a more deeper position where he's contributing something above and beyond just support for two-star players, we don't really have a very good gauge on what Felino brings. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, I'd mentioned this point before, but there was a lot of talk that, hey, we've traded a first-round pick for a third-liner. This guy's not a third-liner. I mean, I mean, yeah, could he be really good in the third-line role? Absolutely. But it's not—the puck doesn't die on his stick offensively. He's not a black hole. He can get the puck on his stick, and he can certainly make plays. He's not useless in the offensive zone by any means. When I look at third-liners, I think of actual guys— such as Pierre Engvall and Ilya Mikheyev, where you're sitting there, the puck goes on their stick. And no offense to those guys, I really like what they bring in a vacuum, but they're not making plays. Felino will make the odd play. I think it's kind of nice that, you know, I don't want to see Zach Hyman get hurt, but it's kind of nice that they have Felino getting a look with the with Matthews and Marner in case they come into a scenario where they go, you know what, we're going to move Felino up in the playoffs and we're going to move Hyman down to either second or we're just going to say this third line sucks and we're going to have him go carry them for a few games to mix it up. I think that kind of versatility is strong for them. Absolutely. Now, we're also looking at the point where it's maybe not necessarily evident as much this year, but I think that we've been moving away from the top six, bottom six model, and we're seeing more of a top nine and a three-player component to, to uh, align for with players that should be able to kind of jump up and down the lineup if you really need to do that. I don't think Toronto's quite there yet, but that seems to be the model that they're bringing. So if you have a third line with a Nick Foligno and two skilled players that are able to just generate scoring chances and you have a skill set that's able to get pucks back when you don't have it, which is what Felino offers, then that, I think, is a pretty successful third line. If my third line can outscore your best, then pff, I don't care yeah. if they're the first, second, or third line. You just, you're looking for performance in any specific situation that you place them out on the ice. So above and beyond injury and moving up and down the roster, like the, the fact is I think that Felino and Hyman are, are interchangeable parts along that left side, even on the right at times, um, that you can move them depending on game situation. Um, and, and if you really want to go all crazy and just give teams other fits, you could load them all that with Mikheyev in the middle just as an experiment, kind of something like that, and just say, all right, guys, go and create some havoc. So there, it's good to have players like that on the third line, not necessarily a Felino type, but you should get more value out of your third-line players. A first-round pick after about eight or nine, I think statistically has proven, produces a good average NHL player. So a good average NHL player is a third-line player. A fourth-line player is close to replacement level. Skills that that separate first two-line players are, are fairly evident, especially those first-line players, they're fairly evident. Then the drop-off is pretty big after that. So if your third line is scoring goals and it has the capability of being defensively strong, 
or at least defensively structured, but able to chip in with a lot of goal scoring. That means that I have the puck a lot more. That means I'm not necessarily playing defense anymore. So I think that it's a good component. If they want to call, if people want to say that they wasted a first round pick for a, th- a third line player, it's they offered a first line pick for a player that could play anywhere within that top nine. That just happens to slot in first on that third line. I'm glad that you brought up the top nine because I sometimes see commentary on this where people are very fixated on top six, bottom six. I kind of like to think that that is a Brian Burke thing, the top six, bottom six. It came from him way back in the day and everyone just hopped on it. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. Your top two lines of skill and your bottom two lines of grit. And it's just, we work in even numbers. But the reality is if you watch playoff hockey teams really have three lines it's not top six bottom six it's top nine and then a fourth line and even yet last week when bruce boudreau was on he mentioned you need a fourth line in the playoffs and you absolutely do like they if they're giving you eight minutes you still need a good eight mm-hmm. minutes out of them whereas last year we saw with the leafs I, they had games where their fourth line was playing three four minutes multiple times and technically they didn't even make the playoffs so they played a borderline playoff team. And actually, Columbus, to be honest, was like a top 10 team last year when Seth Jones was healthy. But, you know, they played a not elite team, but a, a reasonable playoff team. And not having a fourth line hurt them. But really, at the end of the day, you need those three lines no matter what. Last year, the Leafs probably had one and a half lines. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, it's a, it's not a, a concept anymore. It's a must. That's how you build teams now. And I mean, think about it too. The way that, like Anthony, I'm showing my age here a little bit, but I remember that the, the distinct divide between the top two lines and the bottom line yeah. and the fourth line just being enforcers and goons and all of that. So now as that's kind of shifted out and you have no more enforcers, you have skilled components on your fourth line, There have been kids now that are coming into the league at 18, 19, 20 years old that can do things that veterans weren't able to do back in the day. Your third liners in today's NHL are a million times more skilled. That might be a bit more hyperbole, (laughs) but they are so much better than they ever were that you automatically have to adopt that top nine model. And a team that understands that is are teams that, that really did study. They did their work, the Carolinas, the Torontos, even the New York Rangers, even though they don't have the players to fill it out. But you can kind of see the mentality and the concepts of, of top nines uh, um, permeating throughout the league. There's just so many good players that are kind of joining in um, that we're never going to go back to that top six, bottom six mentality. It's always going to be top nine going forward. The bottom, the bottom of those lineups across the league has probably been. I mean, you talk to pretty much anybody that's that's played in the league or been associated with it over the past ten years or so. Especially if they went back fifteen and then played through most of them or like a good chunk of them, they'll tell you. I mean, if you got on against a fourth line back in the day, it's it's almost a free goal. It's straight up, <laughs> right? And, and now it's not. It's just it's not. I mean. You might, you might have a shift as a top line where you go up against the Leafs' fourth line with Jason Spezza and, and Joe Thornton, and you could get scored on and skate back to the bench, and the coach is looking at you going, I literally got you a match against their fourth line, and you guys came back in your dash one. Like, the, the disparity in kind of how those fourth lines and the overall 
league has grown is just wild. So when we talk about kind of like building for the playoffs, I think that was a big sort of lesson uh, of sorts. I mean, the Leafs came in over the the early times um, under Kyle Dubas and, and Brendan Shanahan, and they tried to have a lot more of, uh, their, you know, like the Tyler Ennis's of the world down there. And while they still have a skilled fourth line, and I know they have Adams, Adam Brooks um, kind of hovering there, I really don't think he's going to play in the playoffs, but we'll see. Um, you know, they've actually kind of built out more of like depth players and role players. They've made sure the guy can play the game, but they've act- he's actually really worked, in my opinion, as I see his roster construction, even picking a guy like Nick Felino, he's sitting there saying, I need to kind of have a variety in my lineup. I need to mix it up a little bit. I can't just throw together, you know, 10 skill guys, dust my hands and call it a day. Are you seeing that same sort of evolution from him? So the, the concept that you just described, um, the way that I've been kind of putting it is like that fourth line, even if we do end up going to that top six, sorry, top nine model, um, it has to still contain skilled components. Um, that's the way that you beat just to, to go for your point that said uh, um, it was almost a guaranteed goal. So I think even in today's mentality, we still look at a fourth line and we expect grit. We expect physicality and energy and all and all. And I don't really think that that's wrong, but I don't think it's it's necessarily true anymore either. I think that you see more Jason Spetzes and Adam Brooks than you do see Wade Belax and Ken Baumgartner. That just doesn't work out that way anymore. And in the end, a player like Felino will do little things that amount to what a team would call toughness. Like for me, I just don't think an individual player is good enough to say that a team has elevated toughness. When they brought in Kyle Clifford last year, that didn't elevate their toughness. If he's not on the ice, it does nothing. So I think toughness and grit and all of that is not necessarily a player characteristic. I think it's more of a team level mentality and a team characteristic. If Austin Matthews is in the corner and he has to put his body in the way because that's the only way to get the puck back, he's got to make that play. That's got to be enough grit and and physicality and you don't have to bash, smash, and crash, but you have to put yourself in a position every once in a while where you put your body at, at risk. I remember the specific goal. It was game seven against Boston, and it was Jake Gardner that got beat. And I remember one thing. Nylander was skating the opposite way, and I can't remember who the Boston player was, before they entered the zone. If Nylander just leans into him, doesn't even have to hit him, just lean into him enough to obscure the balance on the Boston player, that goal never gets scored. So skilled players have to be able to provide a gritty component. Felino doesn't have to go out there and bash, smash, and crash. He just needs to go and play defensive structured hockey. If everybody plays a responsible enough team gritty, team toughness game, you never need fourth liners to be strictly grit mentality, or sorry, grit energy and toughness and all of that. You spread that around to the players that get the most ice time, they elevate their physicality enough to just 
be selective about when they use it, and then that toughness narrative just ends up dying. Toronto did a good job of that, I think, in the second round, uh, sorry, the second time round versus Boston. They were much better prepared for that. Everybody got involved. It was really, Connor Brown, I recall having a very good playoff like that, just being physical at times, being selective. But you need that from your top six guys. So you got skilled components coming in. They need to show these kind of versatile elements. And the Leafs still haven't really shown that entirely. So to me, I think they need to kind of make sure that everybody understands that toughness has to come at a team level. And some sacrifices do need to be made. It can't be the fourth line guys. It can't be Nick Foligno and Zach Hyman. It's got to be everybody. When we talk about that team toughness, I'm not going to lie. One thing that has kind of not sat well with me the past uh, week or so is, you know, Edler, Edler straight up, he took a run at Zach Hyman. He did. You could tell he's at the, I mean, everyone knows he was at the end of his shift. It was like two minutes. He hadn't played in a month. He was gassed. And he quite literally, you could, you could see on the body language. He basically just said, F it. I'm running this guy. Whatever happens, happens. And now Hyman's out for at least a few weeks. And there were a lot of guys that were staring at the ceiling after it happened. And I'm not saying someone has to, you know, grab Edler and, you know, beat the living tar out of him or anything. And of the guys that were on, I think only Jake Muzzin would potentially even be somewhat capable, but still probably not. But, I mean, there could at least be some team unity. And we kind of saw, I'm sure you saw this because it was kind of highlight real material. Alex Kalorn absolutely laid out Martin uh, Netcash on Carolina and Jake Gardner of all people Jake Gardner went in there and about the second the fight started you could see it on him he was like oh no what did I do here but at least he stepped up it was shocking to me that Jake Gardner did that after watching him for years as a Leaf the fact that he did that I mean kudos to him I have all the time and respect for it, it was funny kind of watching him you know with that look just I don't know what I got myself into but you know it just watching kind of like nobody do anything and then if you're gonna take a power play then you you better get three out of five that you're gonna take a five if and nobody's gonna you know breathe air on edler for doing that then you better score three and then honestly even against the jets and i've i've debated this one with a few people to me and this could be you know me being a little bit too old school on this I'm sure it will be. So there will be some people that are like, yep. And then a lot of people that will be like, idiot. But, you know, Perot ran Tavares and got his elbow up on him. And I know Simmons was there and he gave him a shot. But to me, I don't know. A guy runs your captain like that. It, you know, I know it's a tight game. I know people are like, take the power play. From my view, the, the Leafs are finishing first. They have to fall off a cliff to not. I could care less about what like the ensuing power play at that point i just i don't want to see a guy run our captain like that with his elbow up and perot is in that like daniel briere sneaky dirty like small guy where people are oh yeah he's skilled he's small but he's kind of dirty and he's been like that his whole career i just i don't know both of those plays they just they didn't sit great with me on the response yeah i i think there's a um a very old school attitude that I even kind of envelop in myself. If there's something in that regard, then there has to be some form of 
Like, I'm not saying that every hit deserves, no. you know, a big scrap afterwards, but there are certain moments on the ice where you have to take it into consideration and say, you know what, I know I'm Jake Gardner, but I know I have to step up and do the right thing. Yeah. And how did you figure that we would have two separate references of Jake Gardner in this podcast Wild. before we even started? You know? And they're not even they're not even really negative. It's just that's the craziest thing. Like, I would have expected them to be really bad, but they're not. Jake Gardner in a bad, uh, sorry, as a as a brute and Jake Gardner as a defensive specialist. That's pretty interesting how it goes. But no, there should be a re- there should have been a response there, and I, I'm I'm fine with the, the the picture that you painted because I think that it's actually accurate. A guy runs your captain, especially to the point where you might even end up playing these guys in the playoffs. You you might have had that one as a freebie. But this is going to tell you that that was your last freebie. Yeah. It's not going to happen again. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, again, people are going to have different thoughts on this. But if Simmons grabs them and whatever, go from there, fill in the blank. And then, you know, the Leafs have a negated power play and whatever else happens. And it's just a bad series of events from that point forward. First of all, I'd kind of point that back on the team and, and just say, you guys didn't get fired up for, for that guy coming coming into defense of your captain. I think... You know, you kind of need to give yourself a little bit of a heart check there. Uh, and then secondly, I mean, you know, even if something did happen and, and Simmons kind of came out after and shrugged and went, yeah, I, you know what? I don't care because I don't like what he did. I would have been like, forgiven. Forgiven? Yeah. And off yeah. I go. I would, All good. Yeah. Like, I don't care. I just, I don't know. Um, but I also kind of look and I say, especially to the Hyman one, and this could be totally fabricated in my head. Joe Thornton could really just genuinely hate Nikolai Ehlers for reasons that are unbeknownst to me but to to be honest like some of the intensity that i saw from joe and i know keith kind of mentioned that the switch has been flipped but i kind of wonder if joe as a longtime vet and if you look at joe's fight card joe is not soft i know he had this reputation of being soft earlier in his career but joe is not soft the joe would have fought pretty much anybody and he's fought a few heavyweights if you look at his card it's pretty unbelievable and i kind of wonder if joe was sitting there just kind of like i can't believe nobody stepped up and i need to kind of insert some intensity and emotion into the group we're playing like crap we're on a losing streak you know we had a few guys get run and nobody really did anything there was no emotional response and i kind of wonder if joe was sitting there saying i need to show some emotion here and i love it and yeah i can that's what you get from a veteran who's been through the the, well i think that there's also a a a a, 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 not selfish but a personal reason for that you elevate them you elevate your team you give them the ability to kind of hang on to something that they can wrap their their mentality around and say look joe did this this is a 40-year-old man yeah. doing this for us. He's turning 42 now, what this what we year. need to do... Dude, I turned 50. I don't know how this guy can do it. Like, I'm He's dying wild. every morning I wake up. I discover <laughs> new muscles and, and body parts, and this guy's playing a 60-minute hockey game. It's incredible. <laughs> Just incredible. But, you know, even him, too. Could you imagine him coming up with a big scrap sometime in the playoffs? I mean, do you remember the couple of years? I can't remember who it was, but it was like at the beginning of every playoff series, that very first face-off, okay, as soon as the puck drops, we're going to go. And if I recall correctly, one of them was with uh, 
uh, was it Ryan Kessler in Anaheim? And, and I think he did it with, uh, or I think he asked, um, I think it did was Did he try Andrzej to fight Kopitar Johansson? I think he tried to fight Johansson. It was, it might have been, yeah, yeah. Like, he's, he's notorious for the dropping the gloves right off the bat on the faceoff. So, you know, I'm perfectly cool with Thornton's approach to how he kind of has dealt with the last, I know it's a bit controversial, um, but I'll take the controversy for the effect that it probably had in the dressing room. Yeah, and Joe fought Getzlaff to start a playoff series once. That's another uh, one, yes. Which was fantastic. I don't know if it was to start the series, but it was definitely to start the game. Joe just kind of went, all right, you know, here we go. And I always think back to, uh, there's a story in, in The Athletic when the Leafs signed Thornton. I think it was Joshua Clokey that, that wrote it, but he was kind of telling untold stories of Joe Thornton and there was one uh, about, I guess, Connor McDavid was getting picked on and they kind of put out Zach Cassian to protect him and kind of fight the battle for him. And apparently Joe leaned over the bench, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, back when I was the best player in the world, I fought my own fights. And, uh, you know, <laughs> like he kind of has that effect, right, in the room and... It, it just humbles everyone right down. One of the funniest ones I think I ever saw, and any of my friends listening will know that I reference this all the time, but in one of the HBO 24-7s, the early ones, when Yager was on the Flyers, and he was subsequently the funniest character on the Flyers <laughs> in that in that whole show, but Claude Giroux came back from injury, and they played Dallas or something, and Claude Giroux had like a hat trick or a five-point game. He went off. And mm-hmm. I guess the next day they they played it at Madison Square Garden, and Claude Giroux kind of came in, sort of feeling himself, morning skate kind of thing, uh, you know, laughing it up. And Yager just walked in and and kind of looked at him and and was like, "You ever get five points in this building before?" And Giroux said no, and he just looked at him and said, "I have." And then he walked away. <laughs> and it's like these old time vets, man. They just have the stories and. They've they've been through Legend. it all. Like you can't get anything by them anymore. Like, you think that you're cocky and amazing, and they just bring you right back down to zero. And I kind of felt like that from Joe the past little Legends, bit. Legends, baby. It was it was nice to see. And I've been as hard as Joe as anybody, but kudos to him. I kind of wish he scored four goals in a game just to see what would have happened. But I know just the reaction not. alone. <laughs> that guy does not care. He would. I he s- does not care. I think all the, all the Leafs should have just ended up stripping if that happened. <laughs> Everybody with a group. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole bench would, would be outrageous. So we have a few overreaction, underreaction items, and I want to get to them. But before I do, just very quickly as we kind of wrap up on, on Leafs, Habs, and, and playoffs, and I wrote about this a little bit this week, so I'm kind of curious your thoughts. But as far as I'm concerned, and, I, and I've kind of been on this train since the start of the season that, you know, if they don't win in the first round, like if they lose in the first round again, five straight years with this, with essentially the main tenants of this core, John Tavares aside, cause he wasn't there the first, uh, first what two, um, you know, a shoe has to drop. And originally the kind of thought was that it would be Kyle Dubas, uh, or something at a higher level of the organization, would be impacted in some capacity. But honestly, I'm kind of, and this kind of came up just because they went on that losing streak after the trade deadline, and I saw a lot of Dubas bashing, and I know that he can be a little controversial at the best of times with the whole 
hockey Twitter crowd. But, you know, honestly, I look at the job that he did this year, and to me, he did his job. They're versatile. They're deep. If if they don't, if they lose in the first round again, and it's especially if it's to the Habs, because you just know that that will burn <laughs> beyond belief. Beyond belief. But to me, he's not the... If anyone goes back and they blame a decision or a decision that he didn't make, and they say that this is the reason that they lost, I just think it's categorically untrue. I think... We all looked after the trade deadline, and some people complain about Taylor Hall, so be it. But at the end of the day, you look and you're like, he added depth on defense. He added depth and net to the best of his ability. He did add an impact forward of sorts. He added another decent forward in Galchenyuk, who we're going to talk a little bit a little, a little bit about later on. You know, it, like to me, this is not him. Like The coaches have to figure it out here. The special teams are bad. That's on the coaching. That's not on him. The players need to, at some point, they need to step up. I don't know. I don't know what else he could do with this group than what he's brought them to. I think that you're right in the fact that Dubas has essentially said, this is the type of things that we're going to do when he came in and took over the reins. He's worked his plan. He's been um, adamant about the approach, the process, the way and he's kind of methodically constructed the team, adding components of motivation like Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza, above and beyond performance, they are motivational pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to give Thornton a ring. You want to do your part to get Thornton a ring because it's Joe goddamn Thornton, right? Yeah, um, Jason Spezza too. It's Jason Spezza. You can see that there's a thirst among younger players to be able to get. So that's Dubas doing, right? Like there's, there's a culture, a mini culture within that we may not understand or even need to understand. But as long as that dynamic exists and the players and management and everybody is aligned, then that's fine. If the performance sucks to the degree that they were blown out in the first round to the point where they just weren't able to compete, I'll even give you that type of a performance that they did against Columbus last year, then heads should roll. But if they come out and they play hard, shit happens and they just aren't able to win in that first round, assess it for what it is, knowing that you played your best, you gave it your all, you put yourself in a position to win and you just couldn't do it. Now do the assessment as to why that happened, especially for the smaller components in the big picture, and move on to the next year. I'm not really sure replacing Dubas, especially right now, is going to do any good. I, I talked earlier about Sheldon Keefe. His only response to Columbus being smothering was to just load up on the first line. That's a coaching problem. Yeah. That's not something that a GM can come down and say, hey, why don't you uh, do this? And You can't do that. You just, I'm giving you the players. You got all the tools. Now it's up to you guys to put all those tools in the correct order so that you could use them and build that goddamn championship. So I, I tend to agree. I don't think you can put it all at Dubis's feet. He absolutely does deserve some of the blame because it's his responsibility to ice the best team as possible. That's his job. But to lay it all and say he did this because he didn't get Taylor Hall at the trade deadline or because he didn't, uh, uh, or because whatever, pick an excuse out of the book. I, I just didn't can't fathom. get a fathom. goalie, whatever. I, mean, I, I just can't fathom those individual little decisions being the whole, oh, but he did. 
there are many components that come into a playoff win and a loss. A lot of that comes to what statistically is deterred, uh, deferred to as luck. So you get good shooting chances, you get good shooting opportunities, you capitalize on them, you put your opponent in their heels. If the Leafs had the killer mentality that they should have had in game six against Boston two years ago, then they already would have won that playoff round. And that, again, comes to coaching. So if coaching was better, they would have been in a better position to win. So yeah, you can't lay it all at the, at the GM's feet. You could give him the blame that he deserves, but there's a lot of moving parts as to where the heads would roll should they lose to Montreal in this first round. Yeah, and to me, you know, and we're going to get to overreaction, underreaction right now. So pick a topic and you're going to say whether the market's overreacting to it or underreacting to it. And we'll go right from this coaching sort of topic right now. Because the power plays received a ton of attention, and rightfully so, because it was beyond dreadful for the entire month. But one thing that really hasn't equally received the same amount of attention, and I think people have largely just been calling it bad goaltending and shrugging their shoulders, but their penalty kill is 26th in the league, and that's really bad. And I know under Frederick Adams, Anderson, there was a time where like he had the worst penalty killing save percentage in the league. And I think a lot of people just looked and said, yeah, like they're not getting a save and save percentage on the PK is not repeatable. So, you know, really things just need to kind of, you know, even out and we'll call it a day. And I think there's also been, you know, if, if you look at some sort of advanced metrics on shot share and shot quality and you know per 60 rate them the Leafs have generally graded out okay on the penalty kill but you know what at the end of the day it's still leaking goals against pretty consistently uh do you think we're overreacting or underreacting to this I think that that it's actually an underreaction you're right they're giving up a goal a game almost every game um, the last time that they went consecutive games without giving up a power play goal was April the 10th. So almost a month ago. Um, to me, I feel similar to you as far as um, there's some structural components that I just don't particularly like. Uh, they give up the zone a little too e- a little too easy. So the blue line, they give up a little too easy. When they're in their own zone, they're lost. There's still this element of just not being able to know where... It's almost as if it's like a free-for-all. Like uh, My expectation is for them to play a, a uh, um, either a check press or, or a triangle plus one. They always have a component in the middle, two defensemen floating, and then you have that one player. But there seems to be enough confusion among the forwards that they don't cover up. They often leave lanes open. gives teams the opportunity to generate scoring chances, if not outright goals. And with the bad goaltending that they've had in this last few, few weeks, um, pfft, that just compounds the error. Often they say that the best penalty killer is your goalie. And if your goalie's shaky and then your structure is shaky, your your penalty killing is going to suck ass. And that's what it's done over the last little while. So now going into the playoffs, how are they going to make that better? They can't improve the goaltending dramatically. They have to do something to promote the structure. Um, I don't mind using Mitch Marner on the power, on the penalty kill. In fact, I kind of encourage that. I like that offensive component because it puts the other team back on their heels, right? You're going to play four forwards and a defenseman. I'm going to put a very offensively creative player on the ice. You go and deal with that shit. But the Leafs putting themselves into a position where they're using that 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 um, modern mentality of using offensive tactics in the defensive situation is putting them in a position where they're starting to leak a lot more goals. So... There needs to be a balance, I think, that both clubs, 
oh, sorry, uh, coaches and players need to get on. Um, and I'm not sure that they're aligned at this. It looked great for a little while. There were all these components came into play, and they played some teams that weren't able to kind of generate a lot of scoring chances on their power play, and it gave the Leafs a bit more of a of a um, an air of oh, we have a great power. But I think it's an underreaction. I think it's a legit worry going into the playoffs with the way that the state of the penalty kill right now. I agree. I agree that it's an underreaction as well because. Uh, it's interesting you talked about the you know counterattacking a little bit offensively. There was a, a point in the season where they were essentially sending both penalty killers up the ice, and it looked like a two-man forecheck, and they were getting absolutely crushed in neutral zone. They did dial that back a little bit, which has been helpful. But honestly, when I watch them, I see a lot of teams that are able to generate the kind of shots that they're looking to create. Right. You know, if they're trying to set up a shot from the half wall, I'm seeing teams that are able to get it off. We've seen Ehlers score from that top of the circle spot completely untouched. And people kind of look and they're, you know, it's on the border of was this in the house or was this not? So you might get, you know, those kind of shot charts where they're showing, okay, it's not a quality scoring chance of sorts. But I'm sorry. Same thing with Austin Matthews. If you're letting these guys come in with speed untouched and they have a clear, you know, avenue to shoot the puck with a screen in front that's a quality shot it, it really is and we talk sometimes about point shots that have gone in but if you're not boxing out and you're allowing a guy to screen the goalie and the guy's allowed to just absolutely tee off a bomb and get it through while the guy's screening your goalie i'm not going to call it a quality shot but it's certainly not a bad shot it you know not all shots are created equal and sometimes we kind of forget that and you know, just I think fundamentally they have some r- real issues with boxing out in front and, you know, blocking shot lanes. And we kind of saw Nick Felino just in two games. He received a bunch of PK, PK time and, you know, he was trying to put his body on the line. And I think that's probably something they looked at and said, you know, we really don't have a ton of this right now of guys that will actively get in there and, and just straight up block the shot and not even let it get through or make it really, really hard for the team to to get the shot through. And I think the Leafs have hounds on the PK in a good way. I think Hyman is a hound. I think Mikheyev is a hound. I think Marner can be, but when it comes to, you know, blocking shots and getting in the lane and just straight up laying out, generally speaking, none of those guys do it. Even Zach Hyman. And I love, I love all three of them. It's just not really their game. So I think that this is an issue. I think Felino helps a little bit losing Bogosian sucks and they're putting Dermot on it. So we'll see how that goes. But you know, it's if they were, God forbid, they're going to play like Colorado or something at some point, and you're going to allow McKinnon and Rantanen and McCarr to just tee off for free from the sort of outskirts, they're going to they're going to make you pay, right? Whereas the, you play teams like the Habs, and and they don't have the shooters. I'm sorry, I don't care what kind of seasons Tyler Foley's having. He's not Rantanen. He's not McKinnon. He's not the top end of the top end. So that's a concern. Next overreaction, underreaction, the Leafs goaltending. So it seems like Frederick Anderson wants to try to get a game in before the season ends. We'll see if they can kind of maneuver the cap and they're, you know, helped a little bit by the Zach Bogosian injury in that sense. David Riddich, uh, there was a reason this guy was a backup and Calgary paid big to make him a backup. And, you know, Jack Campbell seemed to right the ship a little bit against Winnipeg, but, you know, He'll have that asterisk until he can prove that he's an actual starter. 
So do you think we're overreacting or underreacting to these guys? Do you think this is a concern? No, it's a definite underreaction. I have very little confidence in giving David Riddick the reins outright. Um, we've seen his performance here in Toronto. You know, you can say that, yeah, they can perform better, but there's a distinct level that you need. You need better than average goaltending to be able to compete in the playoffs. And I'm not saying that you need Patrick Waugh of old and, or Martin Brodeur, but you need better goaltending than less than average. I love in the grand scheme of things to think that Jack Campbell kind of runs into the sunset and takes over that number one spot. And it's a great story and he's a great person and it would be a feel-good story beyond the ages. Do I think that's going to happen? Probably not. Um, it, it's a nice, good story, you know, being a record setter and, 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 you know, you wear the historic leaf and all the blah, blah, blah and all that stuff. But now when the, you know, when, when it really counts, can you really count on Jack Campbell to be that goaltender? At the same time, he's also playing hurt. So we don't really know what a fully healthy Jack Campbell is capable of doing. Now that kind of leads us back to Frederick Anderson. Now, Frederick Anderson, when he was first came to Toronto, was part of an elite level of goaltending. I don't use the word elite a lot because I think that it's overblown. It's overused for very average elements. Anderson was an elite goalie. And at the time, the Leafs were so bad defensively. If he wasn't standing on his head, they'd just get blown out. That eliteness, if you want to call that word a word, dropped quite dramatically over the last few years to the degree now that I don't think he's part of that group of goaltenders anymore. But he, I think, provides the best avenue for above-average goaltending. So in the end, my expectation, regardless of any kind of cap gymnastics and all the bullshit that we've seen throughout uh, um, this season, I expect Anderson to be the starting goaltender in game one of the playoffs. Whether he's the one that ends the playoffs, it's a different story, but I think that he's the one that starts it. So I'll be slightly contrarian, although we are kind of saying the same thing. So I'll start by saying I think it's a slight overreaction, but with the caveat that Frederick Anderson actually gets into a game or two in the regular season before playoffs. If he doesn't play at all the rest of the way, and then he has to come in cold in the playoffs, I'm going to be genuinely concerned. But if they could kind of get him going a little bit heading into the playoffs and between him and Jack Campbell, I think they could definitely come to some sort of solution in that throughout the, it'll probably be a little sketchy at times. I'll admit, but I think that they could probably platoon to some scenario where it's successful for them and the team easily to get out of the divi- out of the division into the final four final four different story hope to god one of them gets hot in that time and then you know rides that like rides the wave just ride the wave but coming through i'm like the leafs they do need good goaltending but if it's like slightly above average for the first two rounds i think they're probably good enough to get through that depending i mean montreal is going to start jake allen maybe like you might play mike smith in round two I mean, you could you could conceive a world where you go, okay, as long as their goaltending is not an absolute disaster, they they should be okay. But it comes again with the caveat: they need to get Frederick Anderson going. I don't think that they could just sit there and say Jack's our guy, and we're not going to need Freddie at any point. I think that's a hundred percent not going to happen, unless it's just going to be something undesirable that is the result. So, just they got to get Freddie going. They got to have both options at their disposal. And then, you know, we talk about coaching and decisions of, of what happened in a successful playoff run. Sheldon's going to have to make some tough decisions. He's going to have to pull the right 
trigger and you know who can use all the numbers he wants at some point he's probably gonna have to just follow his gut and and who's the guy and, and run with it so i hope they get there i think they have enough talent to figure it out especially in this division i just i hope he, he pulls the right triggers on it and and last overreaction underreaction here and then we'll wrap up because uh you've been great and giving us a ton of your time today which we're very appreciative of but Alex Galchenyuk. So he started off uh, pretty hot. He he actually saw his ice time dip quite dramatically in the last game against Winnipeg. He was late on a back check shift one that led to a goal against. He took a holding penalty shortly after. He played around 10 minutes that game. He's now at seven points in 18 games as a Toronto Maple Leaf, which is yeah, it's okay considering he's played with two elite centers. I mean, legitimately two of the top 15 centers in the NHL. And that's, you know, he's road shotgun with one of the two pretty much the entire time. Do you think this is a blip in the road? He's overreaction, underreaction to Alex Galchenyuk here. He's had three of his 18 games where he's generated five or more individual shot attempts and two games where he's generated five or more individual scoring chances. So I think that that's kind of what I expected out of him. So I think that there's a distinct... I think that there's an overreaction to this. Um, I like Galchenyuk where he kind of fits in with Tavares and Nylander. I think that they make a good fit. I get that the performance probably isn't... as, as good as expected, especially a little bit more lately, just because it seems like he's dropped off a little bit. Um, but having said that, I don't know where that kind of puts Felino and Hyman on that side. I think Alchenyuk deserves the opportunity to start the playoffs, let's say, between, or sorry, with Nylander uh, and Tavares. So that means that Felino is on the third or on the first, Hyman's on the third or on the first, and that's all fine and good. Until Galchenyuk is kind of... He's that rotating part. All NHL teams seem to kind of use pairs up front and they have a complementary third. So Galchenyuk's that complementary third. But he's not very good if you have to stick him down the lineup because now you have better players up ahead of him. So you put him in a situation where, yeah, he's making very little money and he's a good value for what he kind of brings. But is he really going to give you his best performance as a third or a fourth line player? Is that what you're really going to get as far as maximizing their their the opportunity and, and giving him the ability to just be productive in a Leaf uniform? I think if he doesn't end up playing with Tavares and Nylander, I don't think that we're going to get a lot of good performances out of him. So I'm a little worried about where and how they're going to end up using Galchenyuk moving forward. Yeah, I think I think people in general are underreacting to this just in the sense that We've seen this movie from him before, right? If if you go back and and look at what people were saying about him, and, and even just in Ottawa earlier this season when he got there, uh, he scored the he he ripped a bomb of a one timer and scored a power play goal, and people were all fired up. Galchenyuk, you know, still kind of young, has a thirty goal season on his resume, and then he fizzled right out there. You know, he was on Minnesota last season. Um, he was on Pittsburgh. You know, he's kind of been in these situations where he's come in hot and kind of fizzled. And, you know, early on, I tried to kind of hold off, hold off, hold off. And then, you know, a few games ago, I was finally like, okay, he, he's he been consistently solid. Give the guy his due. But 
the last few games is kind of it's kind of finally kind of hit like this is what bad Galchenyuk looks like and and this is what what he is on the team and you're right in in the sense of the top two guys and having a third rotating you're right he's that guy and he can kind of rotate in as necessary so I think there's a role for him there if we're ultimately just going what are the two best lines on the Leafs he doesn't make one of the two lines right now that they have you know that's that's the reality yeah you know it's kind of it's funny sorry I just want to end on this kind of note in the 18 games that he's played in the if you split it nine and nine in that first nine he had one two three four five games without a high danger chance he had three four five altogether in the last nine games he's gone one game without a high danger chance so he's generated at least he's generated not been on the ice for he's generated at least one or more high danger chances in the last nine games so it looks like he's hasn't been producing a lot but the numbers are pretty good for him so i'm kind of wondering if keith and everybody else is looking at these and going you know maybe he does deserve a little bit more of a look in that we'll use the top bottom six split just as a as an example so if there are some underlying numbers that we don't necessarily go a little bit more deeper into they might look at it and say yeah let's take a chance see where we are there yeah to me ultimately i think he needs to you know he needs some things to go right in in terms of actual production prior to zach hyman returning because if if this is if if he's going to just kind of you know, miss out on a back check, take a bad penalty, see his ice time around 10 minutes without Zach Hyman in the lineup. It's not going to go well for him when Zach Hyman does get back into the lineup. I could see a world where he plays on a fourth line with Jason Spezza maybe. And, you know, they they chip in the odd goal. You know, maybe Kerfoot's their center. And it's actually kind of an interesting fourth line. Uh, that is, theory, isn't it? <laughs> right? Like, it's, you know, yeah, it's Skilled an interesting components. fourth line. Yeah, and there's some speed and and some shooting for sure. So, you know, I think there can be a role for him on this team, but I think he needs to cash in a little bit more than he is right now, uh, both like figuratively and literally, while while Zach Hyman is out, because he he will not like the results, because they're not going to, you know, he's not going to play over a guy like Ilya Mikheyev, because he doesn't bring what Ilya Mikheyev brings to the lineup. So he needs to he needs to like create so but good point to to note the what he is creating so with that i will ask any final thoughts from you before we end this podcast i hope that this newfound power play success is sustainable and finds its way um with a lot more consistency in the playoffs i'm just want this season to end get the get to the dance get it all going I'm a lot more interested, I think, and more invested in this year just because I think that the Leafs do have the opportunity um, to get out of that first round much better than they have in the past. They don't have to face Boston, at least not necessarily for the first two rounds. I think that the second round is going to be just as entertaining whether or not they end up playing Edmonton or Winnipeg. So I, I think we're in for a really fun ride. It's just a matter of getting through this last few games in the season. I agree. I mean, this better be a year where they make some noise. I'm totally happy to end on that note. Gus, thanks for joining us today. This was awesome. We really appreciate your insights. Stay safe and go Leafs go. 
Thanks, man. Pleasure is always mine. You guys are just always so great. So it's my honor to be on this podcast. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.